0: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, and today we're going to talk about health care, particularly the problems faced by the uninsured. With me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. We have two guests today. Dr. Rob Stone is a physician and the co-founder and director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan, and Kathy Byers is here. She is director at the IU School of Social Work. If you have Questions or comments, you can join us in a number of ways. You can call us, as usual, at eight five five zero eight one one, or 877-285-9348. And you can also go to the WFIU website, wfiu.org slash noon, and you can contribute your questions, your comments from there. So, Rob, Kathy, thanks for being here today. Thanks for
1: having me. Great us. To, right. to be here.
0: Rob's a veteran of Noon Edition. Been here a, a a couple of times
1: a few times, two yeah. or three times,
0: right, and we had uh, requests on the uh, on this, the show when we were talking about what shows people wanted. People were phoning in with their pledges and their requests to have more shows about health care and and the issues uh, surrounding health care so um, let 's talk I, I guess a, a little bit about the uh, problems of of the people who are uninsured, just sort of in a general sense. And and Rob, I'm going to ask you to start uh, and talk about the uh, the need for an organization like Hoosiers for a common sense health plan.
1: Well, the we we're an advocate for the people who are uninsured. We're also an advocate for people who are insured, but maybe. Worried about what their their future of their health insurance is, and so those those are people who aren't necessarily heavily represented by um, uh, corporations or large foundations or whatever. I mean, we're we're kind of representing those people who who are, don't necessarily have the loudest voice when healthcare issues are debated, and there are a lot of them. Uh, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of eight hundred thousand Hoosiers with no insurance at all. There's probably at least that many, uh, and perhaps as many as twice that many people who have some kind of health insurance coverage, but uh, they might be classified as underinsured because their coverage is is weak, um, or they have gaps in their coverage, or um, you know. And then there are people who are on programs like Medicaid who technically are insured, but they may have trouble finding a doctor. So they have problems with access that way. So there are a lot of people who are really affected by this, more than just the uninsured, but still the uninsured. It's maybe one person in eight in Indiana or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, Kathy,
0: um, again, give us sort of an overview on what problems does this cause for for not just individuals but for society. For society. Mm
2: -hmm. It causes quite a few problems. One problem obviously for people who are uninsured is they – put off going to the doctor or seeking any kind of health care until it's really an emergency situation. So then they show up in the emergency room. Rob sees them. Things are much worse at that point in time. You think about somebody who maybe was having a cholesterol problem and had they been able to go to a doctor over a period of time, receive treatment, learn about diet, exercise, taking medication, that person is going to you know probably do okay, but if you don't treat a cholesterol problem, you can have a sudden heart attack, um, be in the emergency room, and you could actually die um, because you weren't able to access uh, health care in a timely kind of way. So there are some pretty significant consequences for individuals, but I think it's important to remember that the uninsured people affect all of us. I read an estimate. Uh, the other day that about – we pay about $1,000 more per family to support people who are uninsured in our health care costs. So when the hospital figures out what it's going to charge us uh, for uh, a visit, factor in, they factor in the cost that they have of uncollected bills – uh, where they treat people who can't pay. And so we're all sharing that cost And we're in terms of dollars and cents. But we're sharing a societal cost as well because people who are uninsured or underinsured, as Rob said, may um, become ill, miss work. So we have lower productivity. Um, that's becoming more and more important in our global economy. If we don't have a healthy workforce – and it's important to remember that the uninsured are mainly working families um so If we don't have a healthy workforce, we can't be competitive in a global market. So having a substantial portion of the population uninsured really hurts all of us in very significant kinds of ways. Trevor
0: Burrus I think you made a really important point there. I think a lot of times people will think about folks in uh, poverty or think about people who maybe are homeless and they think, well, those are the uninsured. But there are a lot of people, as you said, who are working who are uninsured. Rob, uh, talk about, if you would, somebody who is in that 800,000 group of Hoosiers who is uninsured. What happens when – if it's a family um, and a youngster in that family
1: gets sick, what do they do? Right, so yeah, most of those, and we think in Indiana, about eighty percent of the uninsured live in working families, where at least one uh, one member of the family is working full time, and you know some of these people are working two or even three jobs, but for a variety of different reasons, they can't get insurance. Usually, because they work in a setting uh, where where the small business doesn't offer insurance to its employees. So, what happens when you can't? You know, you of course, as Kathy mentioned, you, you postpone. Going to get care, um, you know. One thing we might might be interesting for our readers to think about is, is uh, you know, Kathy mentioned cholesterol and, and the problems of heart attacks, but you know, diabetes mm-hmm. is, is a disease that we talk. We're hearing so much discussion about nowadays how much diabetes it is, how much it's a growing problem, and somehow people get the idea. You know, I talk to people and. They say, oh, yeah, gosh, people with diabetes, that's that's a big problem. You got to take a bunch of medicine. Sometimes you have to take shots. There are something like 20 percent of the uninsured may have diabetes. A lot of the uninsured have diabetes and don't even know it. Just because you have diabetes uh, doesn't mean that you somehow qualify for some kind of uh, healthcare program that's going to help you out. So lots and lots of people with diabetes have significant problems paying for their medicines and so it's not surprising that – I work in the emergency room at Bloomington Hospital and have for the last 25 years. It is a surprisingly common – I mean almost an everyday occurrence that we will see a patient in the hospital Bloomington Hospital whose blood sugars are out of control because sometime in the last few weeks or the last few months, they ran out of their ability to, to Purchase their diabetic medications, and now it's caught up with them, and they're in crisis. So, with
0: a patient like that, I mean, they come see you at the emergency room. You get their blood sugar back in some sort of order, and they but they're, they're still uninsured. So, so then what? Then right. they, they have to go out and try to buy their medicine again.
1: They have to try to they have to try to piece something together so that they can get medicine they can afford, so they can get some kind of ongoing primary care. Uh, and all those things, there's just huge barriers to that. And of course, these are probably folks who are, you know, like I said, some of them working two or three jobs. A lot of these people are working really hard. They're trying to keep their lives together, and it's really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, some of these people are now with the economy going bad. They're teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and foreclosure. And you know, even before the economy started its downturn. We had lots of data that showed that illness and medical bills was the number one cause of personal bankruptcy. And last summer, we saw the first um, large study on home foreclosure, no surprise. Medical illness uh, and medical bills, the number one cause of uh, home foreclosure in this study from last summer and that's all just getting worse. So when we talk about our current economic downturn, uh, I think you know our care crisis is uh, both a cause and a wor- and, and and it itself is getting much worse. Uh, it's all tied in together. Mm-hmm. Well, I,
0: I want to I want you both to answer this question, but I want to give Rob a, a shot at it first. Uh, first, though, let me repeat our phone numbers: eight five five zero eight one one and eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can send email, uh, comment, just join us on the program: wfiu.org slash noon. Um, If you can – yeah, Rob, just think about your time working uh, in the emergency room. 25 years, you said, that, so it's changed I'm sure. But if you could just sort of reflect on how it's changed from um, 25 years ago when you started to now in terms of the people who are coming in, the number of uninsured compared to previous uh, years, that kind of thing.
1: Well, the number of uninsured has risen dramatically uh, both in terms of total numbers but also in terms of the percentage of the population and so we certainly see that. uh, People understand that – and part of what's happened is doctors in private practice try really hard to take care of everybody that they can. And most of them, uh, most doctors have a, a, a number of uninsured people who they'll go ahead and, and carry along. But most doctors are really resistant, really afraid to take on new uninsured and so it gets harder and harder to get care and then you, it's just such a difficult situation and And I think people, it's easy to imagine how, how hard it is. So what we've seen in the emergency room is that not only has the number of uninsured risen but the number of uninsured who can't get in to see a, a doctor has risen significantly as well and they know they can come to the ER 24-7. We'll see everybody. We're part of you know that thing called the safety net and we'll see them but we send them a bill. They all get a bill, and so and they know that too. And so that is a big reason to delay coming because it's going to end up being more expensive to see me in the ER than it is, than it would be to see your family doctor in the office. The trouble is, um, the family doctor in the office, if you don't have insurance, may want cash up front. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Kathy, uh, in terms of of what you've seen, you know, in your time, at mm-hmm. the school of social work. I mean, how have things changed in this arena?
2: I think that um, we're seeing uh, fewer employers being able to offer um, health insurance to people. Part of that is because of the rising cost of health care and so that gets passed on in terms of uh, much more expensive premiums and the, the small business owner can't really afford that and can't afford to offer that uh, to employees. We see sometimes what employers do so they don't have to offer benefits is cut back hours so that people – Rob mentioned people working a number of jobs and they may be working 25, 30 hours in a job, but not be eligible for benefits because they're not full-time. They're considered part-time, but they're working like three part-time jobs, um, adding up, obviously, to more than a a full-time job. And I also think that as medical um, technology has really advanced and we are able to um, help people In ways that we weren't able to before, Um, you know, 20 years ago, a uh, premature baby of a very small size would be unlikely uh, to survive. We didn't have the medical technology to really help that premature baby. Now we are routinely saving premature babies at a huge cost. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, We should be. But there are increased costs because of the – The advances that we've made in health care and we come to expect that we will be able to uh, use those advances if we need them ourselves or if somebody in our our family needs them. So I think the expectations have really changed uh, dramatically in terms of what's um, adequate health
0: This is a, an interesting and complex issue that we've tackled here today. Uh, I want to make a correction. Our, our brand new website, I just haven't gotten the name right, it's <laughs> wfiu.org slash noon edition, not just noon, noon edition, and we have two phone callers who are using our old method of reaching us who want to talk to us, so let's go first to Chris. Chris? Hi, this is Chris. Hi, Rob.
3: I never get to talk to you except so on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Chris. Hi. I just wanted to add to that, I mean, the percentage of uninsured patients that I'm seeing certainly is climbing. And as the medical director of a, a federally qualified community health center, I think that the FQHC model is still a little bit underutilized. Um, I'm still seeing an awful lot of parents who don't understand that if they lose their health insurance for their kids, the kids can still get their shots. And if they're under the age of five, can often still get their well child checkups. Um, so I'm seeing an awful lot of kids that come in and they're grossly underimmunized. Because the parents didn't understand it, you don't have to go that route. Um, we certainly work to get all these kids back on Medicaid if they qualify, but in the meantime, if parents knew that they can go to the public health department, you can always get your kids immunized, um, especially if they're under the age. Of, uh, it's just kind of a... Of a really unfortunate situation that doesn't have to work that way. Does that make
4: sense? Chris, why don't mm-hmm. you identify yourself and what you do so everybody knows your background?
3: Okay. Well, I'm Chris Holmes, and I'm a pediatrician. Um, I live in Bloomington, but because I really like to do nonprofit work, I actually am the medical director of a nonprofit agency called um, Edinburgh Trafalgar Family Health Center. Soon to have a new name because we're not in Edinburgh and Trafalgar anymore. We're in four different locations, soon to be five. So, unfortunately, the need for us is expanding. Um, so we're expanding the number of clinics that we have. And because we're an FQHC, that means we meet um, federal guidelines for what a community health center provides. Um, We can offer sliding scale services to uninsured adults as well as kids, and then we have a lot of regular insured patients as well as Medicaid and Medicare. Mm -hmm. So we see everybody, and and I'm just, I get so frustrated when I get these new patients coming in, you know, and the kids are 22 months old and they've had two shots, two sets of shots. He says, well, we lost our insurance, my husband lost his job, or we both work full-time, usually, But we don't have any health insurance, and they don't realize they can still get their kids immunized. The public health department does it in Morgan County. Um, I actually work in Morgan County once a month providing well-child checkups up there as well. So there are options. It's a lot harder for adults, Um, a lot harder. We all know that. Mm -hmm. But kids can get primary care for a very reasonable amount of money, Um, and the public health department in some counties, not in all counties, it's very underutilized in what they can provide. You don't need to pay $500 for a kindergarten checkup when you can get it for $3 to $5 at the public health department, completely shocked. Wow. Well, and a lot of people still don't know that.
2: And, and, Chris, I think you bring up some really important points, particularly the focus on the importance of preventative care. Absolutely. And, and making sure that people, regardless of their insurance status, Um, have a way to get that. I think one problem that I see in our health care system is it's really a medical care system, and it is not a health care system. I've read that four cents out of every dollar spent in health care goes for public health and related oh, yeah, kinds of programs. Four yeah, cents out of every dollar. And yet we know if we spend more at the beginning... Immunizations for children, well child checkups, all of those kinds of things, preventative care, as we talked about earlier with adults. If we spend more there, we are not going to be spending more at the end because we are going to find problems early, we are going to prevent some problems from occurring uh, in the first place, and save considerable money. Uh, but right now, our health, health our medical care system is lopsided. We spend more after the problem develops instead of putting more in- into uh, preventative efforts.
3: That's no, quite true. And it's, it's such an unne- unnecessary. Mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, right. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, and I think we're going to get in deeper into the mess as we go along. Chris, you right. are – a... We're pretty
3: deep right now. That's right. I mean, it's right. not even a system anymore. It's, right. a, it's a disaster. Uh, it's, yeah,
0: I meant yeah. only in, the, in discussing the mess here. We're... <laughs> yeah, right. But Chris, you're a former guest on the show, if I remember right.
3: I am, yes. Yeah, that was right. several years ago. That's right. I love listening to Nin Edition. Hey, thanks uh, a lot. Thanks good.
0: Thank for your thanks a lot for your call, Chris. And we'll Thank you. we'll be bye talking bye. about these subjects as we as we move along. Valerie is on the phone too. Valerie?
5: Um, yeah, hi. I just want to make a couple of quick points and then I do have a question for uh, Doctor Stone. Um I'm a Bloomington native and uh, have lived here most of my life, off and on, and you know, my father was a professor, my mother was a school teacher, and I'm just giving this background. Just, uh, I've got two degrees from Indiana University and all the honors and all that. And I'm just giving this background to point out that I think a popular misconception is that people in this country uh, who are facing a health health uh, care crisis are are just the uh, uneducated, uh, homeless, uh, downtrodden, uh, whatever, and the other opposite end, the bad end of the socioeconomic bracket. And first of all, I, I think I'm an, an example that that is not the case. And my second point is I feel extremely fortunate to uh, live in a community like Bloomington that has had programs like the CHAPS program and uh, VIM, because I, last time I had health insurance when I worked at Indiana University, I ended up, you know, having to leave that job, of course, for health problems. And since then, 1999, I've had no health insurance. So I've been in CHAPS and VIM and just mm-hmm. uh, yesterday had surgery, which uh, probably would have cost me thousands of dollars, and I guess all I'm going to have to pay is 200 So I just wanted to point out how fortunate uh, people in this community are. Now, here's my question for Dr. Stone. I personally believe um, that uh, I think the world example that many other countries have gotten a variety of systems together where they can... Uh, Eliminate the for profit insurance companies as part of the formula um I would love to see that happen in this country and uh my question to Rob is, what do you think the chances, especially with our new president to be uh what do you think the chances of of that happening or some hybrid program like in uh in the Bahamas they have two systems they have a single payer National government program, and then they also have a private uh, program for people who want to go that route. You know, what do you think the chances of, in say, my lifetime, I'm almost sixty. You know, is that going to happen in my lifetime, or is there just too, the big money interests just have it too wrapped up?
1: Well, Valerie, Valerie, I'm getting pretty close to sixty myself, and uh, I know exactly what you're saying. I think that. We are facing really a, a once in a lifetime, once in a generation opportunity to, to fix our healthcare non system. The opportunity is there, and it's going to be a, a tough battle. But I think that this is the moment when something could happen. But we can't just kind of say, "Oh, you know, I'll trust Congress to to fix this problem." You know, there's been a lot of talk. You know, Senator Ted Kennedy's going to have some kind of a plan that's going to move us towards universal care. Of course, Obama ran on a program that would move us towards universal care. Uh, Senator Max Baucus uh, in the, uh, from Montana has proposed a plan. There, there are lots of plans out there. They're all The ones that are mostly being talked about are fairly similar plans and the thing that unites all, all those plans, uh, the Baucus plan, et cetera, is that they keep – the private insurance industry, which you were mentioning, the for profit insurance industry as major players in 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 the solution and and I have real problems with that because I see the for profit insurance industry as adding huge layers of inefficiency, bureaucracy, and waste as well as Aww. unfairness to the system and so I would rather move to something else, and the simple common sense answer is to use our 40-plus year experience we have with Medicare, which is a universal, you you could call it a single-payer system, meaning it's financed by one group, it's financed by the government, but delivered by private practicing doctors and hospitals. Use Medicare and expand that to cover everybody, but that would mean, and you alluded to this in your question, that would mean doing something fairly radically different with the for-profit insurance industry. Now, a lot of people say, well, don't they have private insurance in France and in Germany uh, and in Japan and other countries that have universal care, but they do it still through private insurance and that's, that's exactly true. However, those insurance companies in France and Germany actually bear almost no relationship to our insurance companies because those companies are heavily regulated and are almost entirely not-for-profit. So our relatively unregulated for-profit insurance companies, which are, of course, the largest one in terms of number of lives covered, is just up the road here in Indianapolis, Anthem Well Point. Um, These companies, I think, are really more part of the problem than the solution, and that's not a politically real uh, popular idea because these companies uh, are feared because of their their lobbying power and all. Um, so that's that's my take on it. But we've got a chance to do something. I hope we can.
5: Well, I hope so, too. Thank you.
0: All right, Valerie. Thanks a lot for the call. 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can join us on our website, org slash edition. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
6: You're listening to Noon Edition on member supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and movie, play, and opera reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, Rob Stone, a physician and co-founder and director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan and director at the IU School of Work, or School of Social Work, Kathy Byers. You can join us at 855-0811 or uh, 877-285-9348 or you can join us online wfiu.org slash noon edition. Um, this is a very, you know, complicated mm-hmm. pro- uh, problem as we said. You know, the we were just talking just briefly in the break about insurance and about the you know, Rob just talked uh, eloquently and passionately about his idea that the insurance companies are not part of the solution to our health care problem. They're part of the problem or part of the problem. The um, the, the what 's it going to take for you know, for how is there the political not the political will, but just the you know we saw a sea change in the last election. I think that that President Obama has you know, if not a mandate, he certainly has a lot of support mm-hmm. um, so you, you talked about this being a sort of an opportune time to do something. You know, what's do you see grassroots groups like yours popping up and working like the Obama campaign popped up and really worked for their candidate?
4: Are people fed up enough to really stand up and and you know make a make a big fuss about this?
1: Well, I think I think the, the short answer is yes, for sure. Actually, I was at a, a meeting uh, the week after the election in Washington D.C. It was a national coalition that we actually met at AFLCO headquarters. Uh, There's lots of labor support. There are lots of different groups like ours. um, You know, Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan is uh, based in Bloomington, but we have very active chapters in Fort Wayne, in Indianapolis, in New Albany. Uh, We've got chapters in Terre Haute and Evansville, and we're we're looking to continue to spread out throughout the state because everywhere we go, people say, what can I do to help? What what can I do to put this forward? Can
0: I ask a quick question about that? In the other chapters, are there – physicians who are as involved as you are? Uh, Not
1: in all the other chapters, but yes, uh, certainly in Indianapolis and Fort Wayne, we've got some very important physician leaders in in both those areas. And we're always looking to get uh, more physicians involved because physicians certainly have a a unique perspective, as do nurses, uh, an important perspective to share.
4: You know, one of my brothers is a physician, and he does not embrace this concept. And I I wonder if perhaps he's not more the, the majority than not. And so, you know, what do you do? How do you convince your fellow uh, physicians, or do you, um, that this isn't working and we need a change?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, actually, the 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 only the largest poll of physician attitudes about national health insurance was published just uh, the first week of April. And uh, one of the co-authors was uh, a, a fellow I know at IUPUI at the med school, Dr. Aaron Carroll. And they polled uh, – I think 5,000 physicians around the country and they interestingly enough showed that when they asked the question, would you favor national health insurance to cover everyone, 59 percent of physicians um, were in favor and uh, 36, 37 percent were against and then the rest were undecided. It was was almost two to one in favor. Now, that doesn't say exactly how to get to some Mm -hmm. kind of national health insurance or what form national health insurance is going to take and physicians are accrued. That tend to be fairly conservative, mm-hmm. uh, certainly afraid of change, particularly mm-hmm. if it 's a change that could possibly in- impact their incomes but on the anecdotal side, what I hear more and more from my colleagues who you know, who stop by the e r and mm-hmm. we cross paths. They say, you know, Rob. A few years ago, I could never agreed could never have agreed with what you're saying, but now I'm so tired of fighting with these insurance mm-hmm. companies. I am so worn out. Uh, I'd, I'd I'd rather move to some something more like Medicare for all uh, than to move than to keep having to beat my head against the wall with Anthem. Mm-hmm.
0: I've heard a few physicians that that I know say that they spend a lot more of their time and energy and, right. and even money on. Issues that have nothing to do with delivering. It's medical. an industry right. I- right.
4: itself dealing with the insurance industry. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. yes, and the
2: and the cost of the billing procedures. Mm-hmm. When you think about your patients come with all different plans mm-hmm. from all different insurers, and somehow you have to try to keep all of that straight mm-hmm. in your office. Um, I think the the cost of being a physician, of having an office is tremendously increased mm-hmm. by the current system that we have and the, what I've seen over the years, the more aggressive um, efforts on the part of insurance companies to deny claims. Um, and to make patients go through hoops. Well, that's, that drug that your physician uh, prescribed is not in our formulary. So you have to try this other drug first before we will authorize that we will cover the drug that your physician prescribed. So the insurance companies are dictating in some cases to the doctors what their practice will be, uh, which I don't think goes over well with most (laughs) physicians.
0: (laughs) We have a couple more callers that are are waiting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's let's go to the phone and Hal. Hal?
7: Well, hello there. Hey, Hal. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, I'm about (coughs) to retire and fortunately I'm pretty well covered in terms of health care. I'll transfer to my wife's health care, but I just in terms of principles, why isn't it this simple? That health care shouldn't be for profit and that the government ought to take charge and take responsibility. That's, and for example, Milton Fisk, who's been here for a long time, has uh, taken the same position. You know, why are we pussyfooting around this? There's no business people making profit out of taking care of people. I just threw that out. Kathy?
2: I was just going to say, Hal, I really agree with the uh, position that you have because I think some people, uh, probably you included and certainly I am in this group, see health care as a fundamental right um, and just as we have a right to vote, we have a right to a free uh, public education. Now, we pay for our public education through taxes.
7: Actually, um, so we have we a would, right to a free public education under the Indiana Constitution, but go ahead.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> anyway, okay. But, but we do have – I mean, if you see health care as a right as opposed to a commodity, you know, if you see health care as a commodity, it's like a radio. And you go out and purchase a radio, the kind of radio you want, if you want one, or if you need one for some reason. And it's part of the marketplace, if you will. But if you see healthcare as a right, then um, we don't distribute it in the same way that we distribute um, things that are are produced as as part of the the economy for consumption. If it's a fundamental right. It's a social utility. And as you said, government um, could be providing the means by which people, everyone would have access to the health care that they need.
4: But that's the very basic issue that as a nation, we haven't come to agreement on, that's nor right. will we ever completely. But we haven't even had the discussion enough yet that, you know, that that seed has been, I think, planted in a a very effective way and people have to really, from a philosophical standpoint, make that choice in their own minds. And I think that's, you know, that's going to have to be the groundwork that gets done before national health care will succeed, that we have to make a a national choice. Mm -hmm.
1: Rob? For me, in terms of what uh, what you said, Hal, it really comes down to as simple as this. If you understand how is a big insurance company going to make a profit, it's you know, the economics are pretty simple. They're going to take in premiums from healthy people and then to make it profitable, they've got to figure out ways to not pay that money out. people are sick. I mean, it's really as simple as that. That's that's how they can make a profit is figure out ways to not pay money out, but to keep taking it in. Now, I went to medical school for just the opposite reason. I went to medical school to take care of sick people. Uh, So that's why I find myself kind of diametrically opposed uh, to this idea of for-profit health insurance. I just don't think it really makes sense. uh And we're the only country in the world that really – that is dominated by for-profit health insurance. Mm -hmm. In terms of national
0: health care, Rob, I guess I'm curious about this because you go – you went to medical school. Young people who start medical school now are going to have how many years before
1: they actually are practicing medicine? Usually four years of medical school and then at least three years of training after medical school. So seven years and they're – right now they're paying – that. And that's postgraduate.
4: So, so they have mm-hmm.
0: huge loans that they have to pay back at the end of time. So in a in a country that has national health care, how does the health – how does the medical education system work differently from ours?
1: Well, the system I'm most familiar with is the Canadian system and the Canadian system is interesting because, um, you know, we hear kind of frightening things about the Canadian system, which turns out – largely to be uh, more myth than reality. The reality is that in Canada, it is much more difficult to get into medical school than it is in the United States. It's much more competitive, and, and most people understand it's very competitive to get into medical school in the United States. The Canadian medical schools average three times more applicants per Open slot in medical school uh, than U.S. school, so it is extreme. So, so, so that says a couple of different things. One is that I think people growing up in Canada decide they want to they want to work in medicine in the Canadian system, um, and it says that. But part of the reason for it too is that the Canadians do subsidize their medical education more than we do. Um, Indiana universities, this is a state school. Uh, average graduates of our uh, Indiana University medical school just from their medical school, um, have $140,000 as the average debt, and that is really huge, and, mm-hmm. and it's a real problem. It is. Yeah. Right. Okay, we have another phone call, and it's John.
0: John?
8: Right. I'm would like. Um, i uh, listening with interest to the conversation from the get-go. Um, I'd like to be the shell in the omelet, if I could. <laughs> sure. Um, I have three, three points. Uh, number one, I come from a long line of physicians and dentists on both sides of my family, going way back, and um, <clears throat> they uh, they tell me that um, things became very complicated for them, uh, very expensive for them, and um, and bureaucratically labyrinthine, if you will, <laughs> when the government uh, got involved and the insurance the insurance companies and the government got involved into the healthcare system uh... they're not convinced that a government um, single-payer plan would be the best option either uh, i spent some time in canada and i can tell you that the reason canadian medicine is successful <clears throat> and comes in uh... with good budget uh, Terry figures is that they offload their um, complex cases the ones that require um, high technology to the united states In other words, if somebody doesn't want to wait on the queue, a die on the queue, uh, getting an MRI or something uh, very, uh, some kind of surgical uh, response that's complicated, they come to the, they're forced to come to the United States and pay out of pocket. And and so there's a, there's a a sort of a deception built into the Canadian single payer plan that's not often discussed. In fact, uh, the problem is so acute that Quebec has, um, uh, as I understand, is opting out of the system or has made um, uh, 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 significant steps to opt out of that system. Uh, number number th- number three, two is several years ago I spent. Um, hey, John,
0: can we, can yeah. we, can I, how about if uh, Rob addresses and Kathy address number one and then we'll let you go to number All two. Right. How about that? Sure. Okay.
1: Okay. So you gave me a lot of number one, but I'll try to be brief. Uh, I think if you really look at what happened after Medicare was instituted in 1965, physicians, although, although the American Medical Association fought it tooth and nail and proclaimed that it was the beginning of communism in the United States, actually physician salaries went up dramatically uh, and it's been – Medicare has been one of the best programs mm-hmm. for American physicians. Private insurance on the other hand is much more of a hassle for an, – and, and, and with the growth of for-profit insurance in the 90s, that's really when – doctors started finding the nightmare. The last 15 years for doctors has been really Mm -hmm. tough. The Canadian system, uh, actually, uh, almost an entire uh, issue of the uh, the journal Health Affairs, which is you know a very geeky uh, health policy journal, which I read, that's how geeky <laughs> I've become, uh, was devoted to answering this question about uh, do a lot of Canadians come to the U.S.? Uh, and actually in terms of real data, there's, there's anecdotes out there, but there's, the data actually supports the fact that they don't. Uh, Canadians have a, a higher per capita rate of kidney transplant than U.S. people done kidney transplants done in the – you can get a kidney transplant done more easily in Canada than the United States. Uh, same with ultra-high tech like heart-lung transplant. There are some things. They've got a shortage of MRI scanners in Canada. You know, that's a pretty easily fixable problem since they spend half what we do. But um, – I'm not sure that I completely agree. The whole thing about Quebec is a whole sidelight which we probably shouldn't go into. But actually, the most recent uh, movement in Quebec is is back totally in line with the national program. Uh,
8: all right. Well, the- I should point out that Quebec uh, made those moves because of the the long lines people were, were the long queues people were facing. If I could go to number two. Sure, quickly. absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> number two is I, uh, Several years ago, I spent uh, two uh, two days exactly two days in a ho- in, in a hospital. Uh, it was up in Indianapolis. And uh, I, don't, I don't have uh, health insurance. And uh, it, it, that was for pneumonia. And it cost me $8,000 all said and done. There were no operations done, uh, surgical operations, $8,000. And I came out of the hospital feeling not, really not much better than when I went in and effectively cured myself uh, for uh, a few dollars uh, using tea tree oil, inhalant, and, and golden seal. And when I told the doctors, I had three doctors assigned to me in that hospital. When I told each of them that I effectively cured myself because they gave me a giant um, uh, a prescription for um, these antibiotics, dangerous antibiotics, they said, well, that can't be. That's just quackery. So, which begs the question, which I put to them, each of them, why aren't you investigating what actually does work in terms of uh, ancient herbal medicine that sprang up for a reason? It sprang up for a reason because it works. And the third um, the third point, very quickly, is I'm aware of a company that has a, a revolutionary um, a, a, a technological breakthrough in terms of uh, surgery. Uh, it has an electro surgery upon live tissue that does not burn tissue, cannot burn tissue. It comes out of the Ukraine, as I say. Um, it is it, it replaces sutures, uh, staples, sealants, and adhesives, um, and it can be used. Um, so, in other words, they can do a colon resection. Uh, once and for all, and so you don't have to go back uh, and open up the patient to, to remove the staples. And I'm wondering how I could uh, get this information to you folks, uh, because this is a, quite a remarkable technology that is unknown in the West and has been used in over 10,000 patients in the Ukraine. Which I might add, by the way, was is the brain was the old brain trust of the Soviet Union is responsible for most of the. Uh, technology that they used during the Cold War. In fact, there's more, <laughs> there's more uh, scientists per capita in Kiev than anywhere in the world.
0: All right, we're going to let Rob uh, address those. The, your last two points, John,
1: very, very uh, interesting points. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about.
8: I'll that. hang up and listen on the air if I could. Okay, sure. Okay, okay thank you very much.
1: So yeah, I think we should talk about innovation and alternative medicine because those are you know closely related and very important subjects. Our current system um, is, uh, in a lot of ways, resistant to alternative medicine. We've taken some steps to to make it more open, uh, particularly through the National Institutes of Health. There's now the um, Office of Complementary and Alternative Medicine, I think it's called, and you know I think things need to be, uh, I think everything needs to be studied in an open mm-hmm. light. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly I I think though that things need to prove that they're safe and effective, and uh, and so that's that's the other side of it. I, I don't think you know we should. I think there are some things out there that are. Um, suspect and maybe you could even use words as strong as quackery. But um, it's a complicated issue that every country is dealing with. And in um, the European countries, uh, the Germans you know, are very open to a lot of uh, stuff that we're not particularly open to. They, uh, they're very open to homeopathy and some other alternative things there. So we could learn some from their experience. Um, but um, on the other hand, I think you know if we're going to try to keep costs under control, we've got to be innovative, but we can't just take every idea that comes down the the, the, the pike too, we've, we've got to be selective as well.
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's important to um, engage – particularly with new, new technologies or, or looking at old remedies to actually subject them to scientific study to see do they really work and maybe they work for some people and not for other people because sometimes you can't answer that question, yes or no, but it, it depends. Um, but I think it is important to not just accept um, anecdotal or um, you know, some information that comes in but really test um, different procedures and different approaches and then practice based on what the evidence tells us.
0: Rob, I don't know if there's a quick answer to this, but um, I, I'm under the impression that the rigor of getting a new drug or a new um, procedure or a, a new um, medical device approved in the U.S. is is much greater than in other countries. I mean to the detriment of, of moving through things through the system. Is
1: that – Boy, that's not a short answer question. Okay, (laughs) Well, never mind then. But let me just give a a quick answer is that on the one hand, uh, our Food and Drug Administration has been criticized for being too strict on introducing new drugs. But on the other hand, drugs have come along that were used in Europe for a while and then we finally uh, introduced them here and then we found they had problems. Um, you know, Viox, for instance, mm-hmm. is an example that mm-hmm. was used year, uh, overseas before it was used here. And then we found out it had big problems. So um, it's, that's always going to be a balancing act to try to encourage innovation and not get carried away.
0: OK, that's a very good short answer. We have four people waiting to talk to us. So we're going to ask wow. the uh, questioners and Robert, you're first to please be quick with your question so we can get on to the other three. But go ahead. Not
6: exactly a question, just okay. a comment or two. Uh, I'd like to quote P.J. O'Rourke, Rourke,
2: I believe it was, who said, "If you think medical care is expensive now, wait till it's free." Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Medicare, as it stands now, which one of you wanted to expand to cover everybody? It's scheduled to go broke in a very few years. I think twenty twelve or fifteen, something like that. And if you're watching what's going on
0: in Washington, D.C. right now, I'm guessing this whole country is broken, getting broker as we speak. How are you going to finance universal health care?
2: And the last thing I'd like to say is that drug companies need to be brought to rain. I'll listen
0: on the air. All right. Thanks, Robert.
1: Uh, I will uh, say aye-aye um, on the drug companies and then we, will, we won't <laughs> talk about them anymore. Uh, as far as P.J. O'Rourke is concerned, of course, I love that guy. He's so funny because uh, that's a great line when he said, if you think healthcare is expensive now, just wait till it's free. And, of course, um, the fact is that if you look at every other developed country in the, in the world, uh, our peers, wealthy democracies, uh, Canada, England, France, Germany, Italy, Spain and so, on, these countries uh, spend half what we do. And so the reality, even though PJ Rourke makes a great soundbite, the reality is that everybody else who has universal care has figured out how to do it for half what we do and they've got better life expectancy, lower infant mortality, healthier populations by pretty much any measure you want to make of it. Now, the big question is um, if we expand Medicare to cover everybody, how how are we going to afford that? Because we know that uh, Medicare is running out of money. And again, that's a, a long question I need to make a quick or pretty short answer to. But the answer is, with all insurance, you know the basis of insurance is you pool risk, and so the most efficient insurance plan is one where everybody's in the same pool, everybody in, nobody out. That's how you build an efficient insurance plan. Medicare runs about three percent overhead. Private uh, for-profit insurance runs about twenty percent overhead. There's a huge difference there. Huge amount of money that can be saved. Medicare also has some problems like Medicare Advantage plans and the Medicare drug benefit, which were done very poorly, way too expensively. Those could be done done better. Uh, If we developed a bill that wasn't written by the lobbyists, I better stop right there. (laughs) Okay, let's go
0: to Mary. Mary, go ahead. Hello, Mary? Hello. Hi, Mary. Go ahead.
3: Well, I just have a comment, too. Um, I have a friend who works, who who teaches at Ivy Tech, Mm -hmm. and uh, he teaches full-time but he's considered an adjunct, part, so he's part-time. They have recently just offered insurance to part-time adjuncts, even though they're teaching full, a full load. But they make this guy makes less than $17,000, and he's considered a professor. And Ivy Tech is a state institution, and so I want people to know that it's not just small businesses that can't, Afford insurance. It's state institutions too. Somebody who's a professor can't afford insurance.
0: All right, Mary. Th- thanks a lot for that comment. I think you made a made a really good point. All
3: right, thank
0: you. Uh, and let's go to Laurel. Laurel. Hello, Laurel. Are you there? Let's see, Laurel. Going once. How about Malcolm? Is Malcolm there? All right. We uh, are are technicians are working on the problem. But we only have about two minutes to go. So, so Rob and, and uh, Kathy, if you, you know, if you could wave a magic wand. I mean, what would you like the state legislature to do this year that might – I know this is a national problem. It's a major national problem. But we're not going to solve it overnight. What could the legislature possibly do this year? And we only have about two minutes to go. Kathy, do you have any ideas? Um,
2: my understanding is that uh, Vice Simpson – from our area, plans to introduce a bill that would um, ask the legislature to study uh, the issue of health care and health insurance here and come up with, in Indiana, and come up with some recommendations and some ideas about how we can cover more people. The current um, Governor Daniels plan is only covering about a third of the people who are not covered uh, by health insurance. So we still have a large segment of our population that, that is both uncovered, uh, uninsured, and also underinsured, mm-hmm. as Rob said.
1: Okay. Rob? Uh, Actually, my understanding is that the Healthy Indiana Program is maybe only covering a tenth of a the tenth? uninsured. Okay. I think okay. It may be I worse
2: saw, than you I, thought. Yeah, it may be worse than I, I thought.
1: You, that wouldn't surprise me. If there's 800,000 uninsured, then I think they're at maybe uh, – 130. Yeah, you're right. Uh, no, they're not even – the goal would be to 130. be 130 and they're not even there yet. Yeah. Well,
2: I knew their enrollment process yeah, was yeah. cumbersome. So,
1: um, but yeah, um, we haven't talked. I haven't talked to Vice Simpson in the last few weeks, but about a month ago we did. Uh, She's got an interesting bill. It would be interesting to see what what could Indiana do if the national legislature doesn't do something. uh, You know, sometimes we think of Indiana as kind of a stodgy state that doesn't do (laughs) things that are very innovative. But we could be innovative. We were innovative once before with health care because we uh, introduced a very progressive, from my perspective, malpractice law back in the years when Otis Bowen was Mm -hmm. governor.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to have to cut Rob off because we are out of time. We could, uh, we're we going to have to do another show about this. I can see that. <laughs> okay, I'll be oh, here. I want to thank Dr. Rob Stone. I want to thank Kathy Byers from the Indiana University School of Social Work. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
6: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.